All right, welcome back to the Theotivity Podcast. My name is Thaddeus, and I'm glad that you joined me for this episode. As I've mentioned before, this season of the podcast, we're going to be tackling some controversial topics that many people are going to disagree on. However, these are topics that need to be discussed and wrestled with because they have practical implications for our lives as believers and even the direction of societies and nations. So listen, weigh the arguments against scripture and come to your own conviction. Now, one of the topics that people can get really touchy and sensitive about is how to raise kids. Everyone's got a strong opinion and very few like that opinion to be challenged. And to an extent, it makes sense that this would be the case. Our kids are the most precious things to us and one of the um, greatest gifts that God has given to us in this life. However, it is precisely because they are so precious that we should be trying to think biblically about how we approach Christian ministry and um, in terms of children's ministry and child rearing, right? To not challenge your starting assumptions or to not consider alternate viewpoints would actually be to do yourself a disservice. Um, How then could you be sure that you're actually doing what's best? There's a difference you see between feeling like you're doing what's best and and actually doing what's best. Now, there's a lot of debate in our time about different approaches to the education of children by Christian parents. Public school, private school, Christian private schools or homeschooling, right? There's also a debate between different models of children's ministry or perhaps better called family ministry in churches, right? Should uh, we keep families together and have children in the corporate worship gathering or should we create age-specific ministries for children and teens so that they can get age-specific instruction and then join the corporate worship gathering when they're adults? I believe that these two issues of education and of children's ministry are interconnected. And you know what we think about the one will inevitably affect how we think about the other one. And these discussions, while not definitional about whether or not someone is truly a Christian, they're also not unimportant, right? We're talking about the building blocks of healthy and strong churches and society when we talk about the family and raising children, right? Children of the future, that's a no-brainer. Uh, they, they're going to grow up to be the next generation of pastors and leaders in the church, as well as lawyers and politicians and artists and teachers in, and businessmen and so on in society, right? <clears throat> and as that great Princeton theologian Charles Hodge once wrote, quote, the character of the church and of the state depends on the character of the family. If religion dies out in the family, it cannot elsewhere be maintained. You know, that, that reformed preacher Richard Baxter also affirmed that. Uh, he said, quote, the life of religion and the welfare and glory of both the church and the state depend much on family government and duty. If we suffer the neglect of this, we shall undo all. So these decisions, when played out and multiplied over thousands of Christian households, can very significantly alter the future of any society. Thus, as Christians, we should engage graciously with other Christians who hold different convictions to us surrounding these topics. Um, but it does also you know, not mean that uh, it is maybe a matter of indifference, such as you know, the color of the church's carpet. Well, even that's maybe not as indifferent as we might think, since aesthetics matter too, and you know, I'm a creative after all, right? Um, anyways, these are topics which should be vigorously debated, and I think convictions which should be argued compellingly because uh, future generations are at stake. Also, both sides have of these debates um, claim to have the Bible on their side. So ultimately, the question will boil down to one of who has the correct interpretation, right? Um, furthermore, 
While I will you know, repeat again that disagreements on these topics does not mean that you have to break fellowship with someone or cease to think of them as a brother or sister in the Lord, I do not think that it automatically means that we take you know, a postmodern sort of approach uh, as if the answers to these questions are just relativistic you know, um, and sub subjective, that your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth, right? Um, there is a right and a wrong answer biblically. Either one of us is wrong or both of us are wrong, but both can't be right. Simple logic dictates that both cannot be correct while mutually affirming um, con contradictory positions, right? And neither is this uncharitable or unloving to disagree and even to disagree strongly with each other. We have to move past our current snowflake culture if we're actually going to have productive dialogue and debate on these important matters. Now, we can disagree passionately, and still love graciously. So take that as my disclaimer because I will be arguing my points here in these next two episodes and basically all the episodes for this whole series um, in this next season. I'm going to be arguing very firmly, right? But I don't want that firmness to be misconstrued as somehow unloving or uncharitable. The Theotivity Podcast. Theotivity is the place where theology and creativity come together. Here you'll find audio narration of articles, episodes exploring the faith, culture, the arts and media, systematic theology, apologetics, guest interviews with Christian thinkers, creatives, pastors, theologians, and much more. At Theotivity.com, you'll find articles and resources to help you grow in your faith, as well as a portfolio of creative works. Like, share, and subscribe to stay up to date on the latest content. So here are two main um, points that I'll be arguing. One, kids ministry, which takes children away from their parents in corporate worship gathering, is not prescribed in the Bible. Instead, I believe that the biblical vision is a family-integrated model. And parents, especially fathers, are appointed by God to ensure that their children receive a distinctly Christian education. So this first episode will consider the uh, first point of family ministry in the church, and the second episode will tackle the latter one of education. So let's talk about family integrated ministry in the church. We'll start first with this approach to family ministry in the local church because I believe that the other question is vitally connected to this one. So what does the Bible say in Old and New Testaments? My basic starting position is uh, well summarized by Article 1 of the Declaration of the Complementary Roles of Church and Family. It says this, quote, We affirm that our, our all-wise God has revealed himself and his will in a completed revelation, the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, which is fully adequate in both content and clarity for everything pertaining to life and like salvation and godliness, sanctification, including the ordering of the family and the church. And they have a whole bunch of citations for that. And then the denial says that we deny or reject that God's word is inadequate for the church and family life and that we need to adopt the traditions of men from philosophy or psychology, pragmatism, entertainment, corporate business models, or modern marketing techniques. Thus, my starting presupposition is that scripture is really sufficient. It's sufficient to make us fully equipped for every good work, including the education and discipleship of our children and including how we should order our worship services in the church. Scripture speaks to how we should approach that and we, we should not replace what God has said in his word with the vain wisdom of this world. So let's consider the counterpoint, okay? Um, so for the sake of argument, let's consider the counterpoint the, that, that churches should 
offer age-segregated ministry programs to teach children and youth in a manner appropriate to their age and stage of development instead of having them in the corporate worship services together with their families. Most advocates of this age-segregated approach to ministry use biblical texts such as Deuteronomy 6, Proverbs 4, Psalm 78 um, as their proof text. And I'm going to systematically dismantle each one of those and show that they are not good proof texts for what they're trying to argue. However, you know, you know, I think all of these proof texts that are traditionally used to support kids' ministry, when it, you actually examine them in their proper biblical context, they're, they are properly directed to parents and particularly to fathers. And we're going to take a, a closer look at those texts in detail in the next section. But for now, I'll just note that I have not seen up till today any biblical text in its right context with direct application to support the invention of a kids ministry program that takes children out of the Sunday corporate worship gathering, um, out, you know, away from their families into some separate kids ministry service. And I'd graciously challenge you to find just one, just find just one biblical text in its proper context that would legitimately lead to such a practice. A text that when rightly interpreted would lead you to say, okay, we need to obey this biblical text. And the best way to do that is to create a ministry that takes kids out of the corporate worship service and puts them into age segregated classrooms to be taught by non-elder volunteers, because usually it's not an elder teaching these kids ministries. Um, I'd, I'd contest actually that that text actually doesn't exist. You're, you're going to look through this whole book and not find a single text uh, that supports that, right? Uh, it, it doesn't uh, exist apart from like the apocryphal sources that make up the canon of Christian kids ministry books. Uh, that's a joke, of course, but only a little bit. Um, the Bible's normative pattern, it, on the contrary, it, like the, the New Testament it actually assumes that children are present in the corporate gathering when, for example, Paul directly addresses them in his letters, which are to be read publicly in the corporate gathering, right? So in Ephesians 6.1, Paul writes, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. He directly addresses the children, right? In Colossians 3.20, he writes, children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. So notice that in both New Testament texts, Paul is directly addressing the children, which means that he's assuming that they are present in the gathered congregation. So why then should we take them out, right? We also know that these letters were meant to be read to the gathered congregation because he makes this explicit in Colossians 4.16. He says, and when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see to it that you read also the letter from the Laodiceans, right? So Paul assumes the presence of children in the corporate worship gathering. And as Dr. Vody Bauckham point, points out, he says, quote, it is fathers, not youth ministers, children's ministers, or preschool ministers, none of which find warrant for their existence in the pages of scripture who are charged with this duty of discipling the next generation. That's from his book, Family Shepherds. And unlike the position of taking kids out of the service of which there is no biblical basis, here there is a clear New Testament basis for assuming their presence in the corporate gathering. God saw that it was important enough that the, the children would be addressed directly in his word, which was meant to be read aloud to the congregation together. And another example of that is uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.27. So therefore, this should also inform our preaching for a family integrated church, right? Where there should be some instruction from time to time geared towards the children in the congregation. This is something that pastors should be doing. 
There are many churches actually which do exactly this, where from time to time, the pastor will have a brief word of exhortation for the children who are present, similar to what the apostle Paul did. And this is good and pleasing in the sight of the Lord. And it follows the, the, the scriptural pattern. And this is not something new, okay, in the New Testament. It is, this is also normative um, for children to be present with their parents in the corporate gathering of God's people for worship throughout the Old Testament as well, right? There's several Old Testament passages that we could cite for this. Um, for example, in Exodus 10, verse 9, Moses refuses to only let the men go out uh, of Egypt to serve the Lord, but insists that the children must go too. In Exodus 12, verses 26 to 27, the Israelites were instructed were, were to instruct their children about the meaning of the Passover. When um, they asked, and in chapter 13, verse 14, they were to instruct their firstborn son on the meaning of redeeming the firstborn when he asked. In Deuteronomy 31, verses 10 to 13, concerning instructions about the reading of the law to the gathered congregation of Israel, which was the Old Testament equivalent of the New Testament church worship gathering, Moses tells them to assemble the people and clarifies that he means the men, the women, and the little ones, so that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord. And even for the foreigner or non-Israelite, that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord. So it would seem that it was important for God to have the whole family there, even with the little ones, to sit under the proclamation of his word. And this continues in Joshua, in Joshua 8.35, as Joshua is reading the words of the law to the people, um, it specifies that, quote, there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 13 to 15, as King Jehoshaphat is leading the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord, the text says that, um, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives and their children. Notice again that the text makes it clear that children are present in the corporate gathering. And finally, when God's people are moved to repentance after the reading of the law and realize how much they had uh, failed to keep it in Ezra 10.1, it says that while Ezra prayed and made confessions, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men women and children gathered to him out of Israel for the people wept bitterly. So over and over and over again, we see that the Bible makes it explicitly clear that children were present in the corporate gathering of God's people for worship and prayer even, and for solemn days of repentance too. The question then has to be asked, right? Why would we remove them from that without explicit instruction to do so from scripture? you know, the objection that might be raised at this point is, you know, we're not Israel, right? So for, for the Christian who might say, well, um, you know, we're not Jews and that was just for Old Testament Israel and we're not Israel. Well, not so fast there, Bob. Um, in one sense, we are Israel. We are the Israel of God. That's what it says in Galatians 6, 16, right? We've been grafted in as wild olive branches. Romans 11 verses 11 to 24 says that. And furthermore, don't forget that Old Testament Israel was to be a model of God's design for other nations to follow. They were to be a light to the other nations, according to Isaiah 49 verse 6. Thus, if Old Testament Israel was to be a model for non-Israelite nations to follow, 
That means that even non-Jews were supposed to follow their example, and for us, that there is a continuing validity of the Old Testament laws. And this is often referred to as the continuing general equity principle of the law. Now, we don't just arbitrarily throw out our Old Testament as New Testament Christians, right? Otherwise, you'd have a very severely redacted Bible. In fact, Jesus himself said in Matthew 5 verse 19, that if we even relax one of the least of the commandments, that we'd be called least in the kingdom. For the commandments um, from the Old Testament, uh, for you know, because there are some commandments in the Old Testament that we we don't necessarily follow in the same way, uh, that we don't um, observe as Christians anymore. Um, the reason why is because the New Testament has told us that they are fulfilled in Christ, such as the sacrificial system, for example, or that they've been explicitly abrogated, um, such as the dietary laws, right? Otherwise, we should consume, uh, assume sorry, continuity um, because God has not changed and, there, and there's nothing in the shift from old to new covenants that would signal a change or abrogation with respect to the presence of children in the corporate gathering, okay? We have no New Testament text that tells us otherwise, so we should assume continuity. <laughs> In fact, um, Jesus himself, uh, just the opposite, right, happens. That Jesus himself says to forbid not the children to come to him. It says that in Mark 10, um, Luke 18, and Matthew 18 as well, right? So Jesus is concerned with the children and their ability to come to him in faith and worship. And, you know, in his earthly ministry, he was physically present. But since his ascension and Pentecost, his spiritual presence is with the corporate gathering especially in word and sacrament or uh, uh, of the Lord's Supper, right? Um, thus, you know, we should not forbid children to come unto him and encounter Christ in word and sacrament because that is primarily where the church encounters Christ in a special way is in the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments in the corporate worship gathering. Now, no, I'm not advocating for pedo communion. You know, that is the practice of serving communion to children but rather arguing that the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism are visual parables of the gospel um, to observers. You know, uh, reformers like Calvin have uh, actually argued that, right? And the Lord's Supper is, a, is the symbol that we're given to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So why would we hide this proclamation from our children? As they watch their parents and other believers in the congregation partake of the supper, they're watching an enacted parable of the Lord's death. Right, and um, the same goes for for baptism. As they observe and look on, they see an enacted parable of the believer um, being united with Christ in his death um, when they go down under the water, and then being raised to newness of life with his resurrection as they come up out of the water. Right, and these are a powerful proclamations of the gospel which we should not withhold from our children in worship. So, therefore, I think it's a pretty clear case from Scripture that. Children should be in the worship service with their parents. And to those who, who disagree, I'd simply ask for one biblical text in its right context that says anything else. Now, there are some pragmatic arguments that we do need to, to deal with, right? So now that we've taken a look at the biblical arguments and seen that, you know, there are no biblical texts that support taking children out of the corporate gathering. In fact, just the opposite is true. Let's now look at some of the pragmatic arguments that are often put forward. Right? Kids' ministry is, has generally um, been more of a pragmatic argument, uh, you know, such as like distraction-free services and, and things like that, right? 
I think it's it's more pragmatic instead of a consistently biblical one. Personally, I think that the distraction-free service argument is a particularly weak one too. Firstly, most parents tend to think that their kids are more of a distraction than they actually are. Yes, we do hear baby Tommy, right? Screaming around and cooing and flatly. We all think it's downright cute. And for those who think otherwise, they need to go think, go and like, you know, read Psalm 127 multiple times slowly, right? Secondly, a kid fussing every now and then and, you know, making a little bit of noise, that's, that's simply the sound of family. And, you know, what is the church called in scripture? The family of God. So it's actually quite appropriate to have kids in church because church is family, right? And lastly, a lot of times for the kids who um, really, you know, don't do well in the service, usually it's because their family has not been doing regular family worship together during the week at home. And this is why on Sunday, it feels so foreign to them, right? They don't have something to compare it to. The solution then is to actually fix the problem at home and to help fathers in particular to lead their households in daily family worship. A lot more could be said on that topic, but we might you know, need to wait for a future episode or article maybe um, to really dive into that. The books Family Shepherds by Vodi Bauckham and um, Family Worship by Donald Whitney are actually really good resources on that. So you can check that out. And it's actually not as difficult as you might think. At its most basic level, it's simply sing a song, read a passage of scripture together and pray, right? That's it. I've personally seen how this regular practice in the home can greatly help kids adjust to Sunday worship much better. Now, it's not saying that it's going to work perfectly or be easy, but everything worth doing comes with work. However, even practically speaking, kids ministry as a a ministry that God's word has not given to the church or any charge to do is something that um, also devours massive time and resources, which could be allocated uh, instead to ministries which God has given the church to do, such as equipping men to lead their homes in the family and for family worship and discipleship, right? Everything we do has an associated trade-off. The fact is that most kids' ministries and churches consume massive amounts of time, resources, volunteer hours, and planning to execute well. And then there's also the fact that a lot of times the volunteers themselves are missing out on church by volunteering in the kids' ministry. And typically, the lack of equipping of men to lead their families has been a major area of lack and weakness in those types of churches. Yet, it should be at the core focus since we all should agree that the family is the fundamental unit of healthy churches and societies. So what better strategy than for churches to spend their resources on the family, right? On strengthening the family and strengthening it in the way that God has ordered it, right? If a church is, you know, killing it at equipping and exhorting you know, all the men in their church to lead their families at home in family worship and the church uh, has a bunch of, you know, extra resources it doesn't know what to do with. Well, then fine. Okay, great. You, you might argue that why not create some extra ministries for the kiddos? However, that church has never existed. And even if it did, because they were killing it at getting the fathers to lead their families well, there would actually be no need for kids ministry. Let's talk a little bit about professionalism. The truth is that the um, age-segregated model supports the growing problem of professionalism, that a paid specialist needs to do the work instead of equipping the saints to do the work of ministry in their homes. Thus, it can end up perpetuating the problems at home rather than helping. However, without the kids, uh, like a kid's ministry, um, during service, churches and families are given actually a big motivation 
to get family worship together because they don't have the fallback of bringing their kids to the professionals to do it for them, right? If little Johnny won't sit still while Pastor Bob preaches, then Johnny's dad will need to proactively seek to help equip him to do so through regular family worship, Bible reading, discipline, and instruction in the home, right? Perhaps consider bringing some coloring books or teaching him how to write notes if he's old enough, right? Or making a game of asking him questions on the ride home about the sermon. I have a friend actually who makes a game of that and quiz, you know, a kind of question answer quiz sort of game with his kids as they drive home, right? And that's one way that they they uh, are able to pay attention and then also to remember what was said in the sermon and to get something, right? Johnny's dad must model to him that sitting under the preaching of the word is an important and regular part of their lives and help him understand that it, that you know, in a way that is appropriate to his age and as only his parents can do as those who know him most, right? However, if the local church is more than willing to help fathers who may already be you know, given to passivity or passing the buck, uh, you know, an easy way out, you better believe that our sinful dispositions will be tempted to take it, right? Um, because if you give that easy way out for that, that dad who's already given to passivity and to, to not taking up that responsibility, you better believe he's going to take it, right? Now, of course, this doesn't mean that a family-integrated church automatically has amazing dads leading their families. It takes a lot of work. No one says it's going to be easy. The question is not over what's easier though. You know, such churches have a a lot more practical motivation when they are committed to a family integrated model. They have more practical motivation to equip men to lead their homes when, you know, there's like 20 little Johnnies that are distracting Pastor Bob from his third point and, you know, who made everyone miss that punchline of the sermon illustration that he spent four hours perfecting last night. Dr. Bauckham comments that, quote, For too long, heads of households have been led to believe that bringing their children to church and dropping them off to be discipled by the professionals is the extent of their parental duties when it comes to their children's spiritual development. That's why spiritual passivity has become such an epidemic, right? If family worship is not happening in the home and the parents are encouraged to come to church and drop off their kids with the professionals, then the kids are inherently being told that their parents are no longer the principal spiritual leaders in their lives. And so their thinking is shaped in this direction such that their spiritual development happens completely independent of their parents, you know, their parents' direct input and knowledge. Even in the best of cases where a kids ministry tries to engage parents um, with what is covered, it implicitly reinforces that it is the kids ministry workers and not the parents who are the primary spiritual leaders since they're the ones who are doing the teaching and discipling, right? As Vody Bauckham rightly points out, quote, <clears throat> of course, setting fathers aside is never the intent of this buildup in the professional staff. Even a church with a half dozen full-time staff working, you know, um, with the children and youth, they'll profess to exist in support of families. Read the websites. These churches all claim to believe that parents are the primary disciples of children and that the professionals exist to only come alongside mom and dad. However, a quick glance at the schedules, the curricula, and the structures reveals the truth. And sadly, I've seen this observation hold true even in churches that aspire to partner with parents through kids' ministry programs. Talk about dividing the church, right? Furthermore, age-segregated churches functionally create different congregations with their own subcultures. 
It also leads to kids who are used to having services that are tailored to them, right? So that they grow up expecting the church to be tailored to them, perpetuating this consumer mentality. And therefore, when they grow up, having been accustomed to having church tailored to them and always being entertaining and fun, they either look for a church that does the same or they leave the church altogether, right? The truth is, though, that the children have never actually belonged to the same church as their parents and have often been a part of something which had a very different philosophy of ministry centered on making it fun and engaging and lighthearted and activity oriented. But that's not what church is. That's not what big people, big people church is, right? Um, none of those things should mark the corporate gathering as the primary driving philosophy of ministry. When we come to worship the sovereign Lord in the corporate gathering, it is a weighty, sober, convicting, and glorious thing, a far stretch from the cartoon illustrations of Noah in a boat full of happy animals, right? So children, when they have grown out of kids' ministry, they are actually being set up to be bored and disinterested in serious worship service uh, that's, that's focused on, you know, not on the desires of men, but on the glory of God and trembling at his word, right? These kids, when they, they are grown up, they're, they're, they're being prepped to look for either a seeker-sensitive church that has an entertaining comedian for a preacher or to leave the world of second-class stand-up comedy for the real deal in the secular world. Perhaps a very significant reason why I don't think that kids' ministry during the Sunday worship service is a good idea nor biblical is that I believe that children should go to church with their parents and kids' ministry is not church. Okay, you get, you get that? Like, I think that children should go to church with their parents and kids' ministry is not church. Now, why is that? Well, the three distinctive reformed marks of a church are not present in a kids' ministry. Firstly, authoritative proclamation of the word by a qualified elder. Most kids' ministries are led by volunteers, right? Um, secondly, the administration of the sacraments. You don't serve communion, you don't baptize in kids' ministry, right? And thirdly, the church discipline, right? Um, there's no church discipline that happens in kids' ministry, at least none that I know, right? And none of these are carried out in a kids' ministry uh, program. And thus, you can't consider what they're doing there to be church. It's something else. It's not church, right? So children who come on a Sunday and go to kids' ministry, and uh, are, they are actually not going to church. They're doing something else. Perhaps one of the reasons why children from evangelical churches who have done the whole, you know, kids' ministry thing end up leaving the church, um, you know, when they become adults is because in truth, they actually never went to church, right? They never went to church in their life. They, they went to kids' ministry. Then they went to youth group, but those aren't church, right? So when they became old enough, they just kept on being consistent and just kept on not going to church. Let's deal with a historical argument, right? So lastly, the age-segregated kids' ministry, especially during corporate worship, is a relatively novel and modern invention. And there's no biblical pattern that would inform such a practice, right? It's more so the product of innovation within the evangelical movement that is actually fairly recent. You don't find anything like our modern kids' ministry programs for almost 2,000 years of church history. That's pretty significant. So you have to ask, what were Christians doing for all that time if kids' ministry is really so essential to church, right? Are we really smarter than 2,000 years worth of godly men and women, right? Were none of them able to come up with the idea um, when they mined, you know, the, the, the pages of scripture? Or is it more likely that they never would have thought 
to do such a thing because the scriptures do not command it. Now, while there are arguments for times of age-appropriate instruction by men such as Calvin, this is why the Reformed tradition has done evening services for instruction or age-specific Sunday school outside of corporate worship times. Let me be clear here. I am not against Sunday school or other times of age-specific instruction outside of the corporate worship gathering. I think that there can be a place for such times of age-specific and appropriate instruction before or after the worship gathering, or even on another day of the week. However, the church is essential, regardless of what the politicians of 2020 to 2021 said. Right? The church must gather, and children are a part of the church. Gathering means actually being together at once in an embodied way, uh, despite you know, what Zoom stock prices might argue. When children are ported off to another room, even in the same building, it can't be said in any meaningful way that they are gathered together with the rest of the body. What you have is actually separate gatherings and thus a fragmented church. And this should also be obvious since the primary metaphor in scripture for the church is the household of God or the family of God and, you know, their children in families. So that baby fussing, the toddler pointing at the, you know, lady's weird hat, in the row in front of you, and you know the the little girls coloring purple elephants and blue dogs, as they all sit under the word being faithfully proclaimed, that should simply be the normal sound of the family gathering. Let's talk a little bit about the regulative principle of worship. I think the root of many of our differences comes down to whether or not we take a consistently regulative or normative principle approach to the church life and practice, right? I think that the regulative principle of worship as reflected in the Westminster Confession of Faith and the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession is the more biblical um, position, right? So chapter 22, um, paragraph one of the 1689 actually states it this way. It says, quote, the light of nature demonstrates that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all. He is just and good and does good to everyone. Therefore, he should be feared, loved, praised, called on, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and all the strength. But the acceptable way to worship the true God is instituted by him, and it is delimited by his own revealed will. Thus, he may not be worshipped according to human imaginations or inventions or the suggestions of Satan, nor through any visible representations nor in any other way that is not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. And it gives Jeremiah 10, uh, 7, Mark 12, 33, Deuteronomy 12, 32, and Exodus 20, verses 4 to 6 as the proof text for that. And you see that what it's mentioned in there, a lot of those things actually are violated by um, you know, kids' ministries, especially the visible representations of the Trinity, for example. Right? Um, we have clear scriptural examples of God judging offering um, of things which were not explicitly prescribed in worship. So for example, Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10, right? So do we take the approach of allowing God's word, right, to regulate how the church should be run and worship? Or do we take the approach of presuming that we can add to it what is not explicitly forbidden? I'd argue that if we do the latter, we're actually running closer to um, Nadab and Abihu. Now, as article number uh, 13 of the Declaration of the Complementary Rules of Church and Family sums it up, we affirm that there is a clear and consistent biblical pattern of worship and discipleship 
for the people of God that is age integrated. And we believe that this pattern should be embraced and practiced. We deny and reject that there is any clear positive and scriptural position or pattern institution for creating distinct age segregated cultures in the church through age segregated worship and systematic and comprehensive age segregated discipleship. For further info, you can find the full text of a declaration of the complementary roles of church and family at the Church and Family Life Ministries website. I'll make sure to link that in the description. And it, I think it's a good summary of affirmations and denials about the important and uh, uh, distinctions of a family integrated, um, uh, age integrated model of church. Now, I have to qualify as well that just because a particular church may not be committed to a family integrated model of ministry, this does not mean that they are apostate or unfaithful in all areas. Even though I do believe that the family integrated model is the biblical one, we must be able to rightly categorize uh, the priority of different doctrines. And you can refer to my previous episode on theological triage for more info on that. But in short, there are first level doctrines which are vital to the gospel that would put you in or out of the kingdom if you, you know, got it wrong. And then there are second and third level doctrines, uh, which true believers can disagree on, but may mean that they may not be able to fellowship in the same local church while they still hold each other in brotherly affection and respect. This issue is in that latter category, right? So of the secondary and tertiary, I would actually put it more so in the secondary category. So while it's important for families to have convictions on this issue and it has you know big implications on a local church fellowship, it is not an issue to treat people who disagree with you as if they're heretics. Also, it's an issue that we should be willing to have um, passionate, you know, charitable debate over just, you know, because because of its importance, we, we should debate these things. And, you know, the second issue that we'll be looking at in this series uh, is similar and connected because it relates to how we view a biblical model of family ministry. You know, that is the, the issue of how do we do we educate our children? Is public school a legitimate option for Christian parents or should we only advocate for Christian education? That's going to be the topic in the next episode. So I hope this episode has been helpful and given you some uh, good food for thought. Make sure to tune in for the next episode that continues this topic. And until next time, soli do glory. Thanks for listening to the Theotivity Podcast. If you found this content helpful or edifying, please leave a review on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, follow us on social media and consider sharing this episode to help Theotivity reach others as well. Check out Theotivity.com for resources, info on how to support, and subscribe to our monthly newsletter to stay up to date on all the latest content. Until next time, live and create to the glory of God.